Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to Episode 10 of Essential Conversations. Internationally renowned conductor, author, and educator Leonard Slatkin, who, over his 50-year career, spent over 10 years as a music director for the DSO, now holds the position of Music Director Laureate. But back in 2014, we had a lengthy conversation in front of an audience in WDET Studio A. For those of you who do not know... Leonard Slatkin's history. This is off the website. So as you know, he's been in Detroit since 2008 with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, one of the best things that's happened to this city. Um, the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra is such a long time with them, right? 1979 to 1996. The music director of the nation, for the National Symphony Orchestra from 1996 to 2008. Chief conductor for the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Held the principal guest conductor position with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. More than 100 recordings, seven Grammy Awards to his credit, and earned 64 nominations. And I thought I was busy. <laughs> Not so much compared to, to Leonard Slatkin, who celebrated his 70th birthday on September 1st. Happy birthday. Thank you. He has an album coming out, by the way. We should talk about that, too. Yes. I've been recording over the last several years for a company called Noxus. When Noxus first went into business, everybody dismissed them because... They were the budget label. They were going to undercut all the big giants, whether it was Sony or Deutsche Grammophon, CBS. They did it by recording standard core repertoire, usually with unknown orchestras and unknown conductors. And guess what? They sold a lot of recordings. Gradually, they expanded their audience base by being more inclusive. One of the very first recordings I made for them was actually done here in Michigan, well before I became music director in Detroit. It was done at the University of Michigan with all of their students, and really virtually all of them, because we did this massive piece by William Balcom called The Songs of Innocence and Experience. It takes about two hours and 15 minutes, required at that time a performance force of almost 700 people between rock group, orchestra, several choruses, children's chorus, this group, that group. And that album won four Grammys, not all of them for me. It was the first time in history that a classical album won four Grammys. So that began my connection with Noxus, and to this day I continue to record with them. What year was that? It would probably be about 12 years ago, I think. Maybe a little less. What is the biggest misconception about your job? That people think it's really hard. <laughs> think about it, though. What do I do? I stand up there most of the time with a stick in my hand. I wave it around. All that sound comes out. And really, I could teach anybody listening or anybody in this room the basic rudiments of conducting in about five minutes. We'll do that later. Uh -huh. <laughs> so what is hard about it? The hard part and the misconception from so many people is, do we play all those instruments as conductors? The answer is no, we don't. Do we have to? No, we don't. But we have to know what each instrument can do. 
We have to know it by the sound of that instrument, whether it's a flute, oboe, violin, trumpet, percussion instrument. More importantly, we have to know how they sound when placed in combination with other instruments. So that when we look at the music and we see all these instruments represented, in our head, just like when everybody else reads a book, you understand what the words are, we translate those circles and lines into sound. In other words, I'm a translator. I'm just taking the symbols left from centuries ago and making them sound like something coherent. This is a quote from your book that I love. Perhaps conductors are long-lived after all, but not because they move around on the podium. Instead, it might come from being moved by the nature of the music itself. The connection with the past is very powerful. Every day, the musician gets to do what doctors can only dream, bring the past to life. That's exactly right. And the correlation between medicine and music goes even deeper than that, because there's something that the two have in common, and that's pulse. Most music, not all, but most, lives by a sense of rhythm, a sense of beat, as do all of us. What makes those beats work are all the little parts that come and put it together. So I love the idea that I can do a piece that was written 150, 200 years ago and bring it to life and try to make it relevant and meaningful for the audience today. I had a discussion with the great Sir Neville Mariner, a name I'm sure most listeners are quite familiar with. In my lifetime, I've seen the early music movement change. By early music with us, we usually talk about that as being Handel and Bach and Scarlatti, those composers from the 17th century. These days, there's what's called historically informed performance, which attempts to replicate how music might have sounded during the lifetime of those composers. And I always argue against it because we might be able to duplicate the sound, but none of us can listen with the same ears that heard that music to start with. And Sir Neville said, you know, it's very simple. If Bach had had a modern toilet, he would have used it. <laughs> so let's talk about the fact that you have conducted certain works countless times throughout your career. Do you conduct them the same way today that you would have 20 years ago? Oh, I hope not. And so here's my question. The notes on the score are the same. It is the same piece. So what changes with every, what is your thought process for every time you go back to relook at this music to perform it again? It's a little bit like asking the actor or the director, <clears throat> what is it when you once again return to Romeo and Juliet or to Hamlet or Macbeth. Every time we look at it, we discover something, something we missed from before. Sometimes we reflect on a past performance, thinking about what we did that seemed right at the time and now seems entirely wrong. But most of all, it's a growth process. If I ever came off a stage and said, you know, that was the perfect performance. That's the day I have to quit. Because music is a constant learning experience. Every time you conduct or play a piece of music, 
already your mind is racing ahead to how you will think the next time you do it. I try not to look back very often. And sometimes if I'm in the car, I have the radio on and come in in the middle of a recording uh, and I find that's, that's too fast or boy, the balance is all out of whack. And then the announcer comes on and says it's a recording of mine. That's when I really realize what has, and that's happened a lot. I really am sometimes embarrassed about some of my sins of earlier times. Can you talk about the first time you got on the podium to conduct an orchestra of the size of the DSO, for instance? Actually, the first time would have been as the assistant in St. Louis. I'd done some conducting before that. In high school, I used to arrange and conduct the shows for the spring musicals, and I had a chance to work with a few youth orchestras. Eventually, in 1968, I was hired to be the assistant in St. Louis. Now, I was standing for the first time in front of a group of prof professional musicians, people who had played the music many more times than I'd conducted it. Fortunately, I'm blessed by not getting nervous. Remember asking my father about that? He said, well, why well, get nervous? He was a great violinist and a conductor, arranger. When you go on stage, you need to be prepared. You need to have practiced. You need to work hard. You go out there on stage, you do your best. Most of the time, when you come off, it's been okay. Once in a while, it's not. But it's not because you didn't practice and you didn't work hard and didn't study. And then he said, but if you're not prepared, if you haven't worked hard, if you haven't studied, not only should you be nervous, you shouldn't be on the stage in the first place. So the first time I stood in front of the orchestra, I was ready. I wasn't sure exactly what would happen when I gave the downbeat, but the sound came out. It was what I expected it to be. And even though I made many, many mistakes and continue to make mistakes, basically I knew that's what I needed to do and where I needed to be. So the first time for me felt very comfortable after having gone through a life of playing violin, piano, viola, composing. I played glockenspiel in my high school band. It was L.A. High, by the way. When we marched down the 45-yard line, I made a left. I went to the 50, and I was the tip of the L. So it felt great when I first conducted. So when you get up there today, do you ever get nervous? No because I would not permit myself, I don't allow it, that I will feel nervous. And this may sound odd, but if, say, a horn player misses a note, or if the clarinet squeaks, or if the violins aren't quite together, the first person I blame for that happening is myself. What could I have done to prevent that? And that's what I think about, that's what I get obsessed about. But it's not a nervous issue at all. And then when the whole thought process ends, then I start analyzing, okay, maybe I couldn't have helped that, or maybe I could have done such and such better. But it's never about nerves, ever. Let's talk about your radio career, <laughs> which I found fascinating. So I'm going to go back a little bit. When I read your book, it seemed to me that the household that you grew up in, there is nothing else you could possibly have done than other to be a musician or a conductor or been in music for the rest of your life. However, sports being something that you liked, you thought about being a sports announcer. Yes, I did. I used to sit by, we're talking a long time ago, by the way, 
growing up in Los Angeles, which is not a fair thing to say because you really can't grow up in L.A. You have to get out of L.A. to grow up. <laughs> uh, we didn't have Major League Baseball yet when I was a kid. We had two minor league teams, the old L.A. Angels and the Hollywood Stars. You believe that? There was a team called the Hollywood Stars. I would sit in front of the television with a little woolen sock tape recorder, and I would pretend to announce the games. And that was one of my dreams. But I always knew it was going to be music, simply because my whole family was in music, going back as many generations as we can trace. Those of you listening and those here in the studio, you actually know my parents. You may not know them by name, but you know them by sound, because my father was the concertmaster of the orchestra at 20th Century Fox. My mother was the first cellist at Warner's, and her brother was the pianist at Warner's. And he films from the late 30s to about the 1958-59. If you heard solo from any of those instruments from those studios, that's my family. In addition, my parents were one half of a noted group called the Hollywood String Quartet, known primarily through their recordings. And then they had a third life, and that was in the popular music field, recording primarily for Capitol Records. So we got to know the greats, whether it was Nat King Cole, Peggy Lee, and mostly Frank Sinatra. These were the people who I grew up with, the film composers like Eric Korngold, Max Steiner, Dmitry Tiomkin, and the composers of the quartet repertoire like Stravinsky or Schoenberg or Hector Villalobos or William Walton. All these people were guests at the house. Getting to the radio part, though, we had one classical music station, KFAC. KFAC was about six blocks or so from where we lived. I loved radio. I always loved radio. I used to fall asleep with the radio on. I would walk to KFAC. They knew who my parents were. And I would just sit there with those people who played the recordings. And they would let me look through the library and listen to whatever I wanted to listen to. And that became a second passion of mine, baseball and broadcasting. In my life, I've been fortunate to be able to do both. When I was in St. Louis, I would frequently go up to the broadcast booth and do color commentary with the legendary announcer Jack Buck for the Cardinals. And I've also had my own radio show. This started totally by accident, because when I arrived in St. Louis as assistant, the orchestra went on strike. I'd like to think it's not because I arrived in St. Louis, <laughs> but they were out for a few weeks. I would go into some schools, work and teach a little bit. And I got invited to do an interview at a station called KDNA. This is just before there was such a thing as NPR. A few stations like WPFK and uh, others like that were these wildly independent, free stations trying to figure out ways to skirt any FCC regulations they could. <laughs> and KDNA existed in a house, what was called Gaslight Square. It was the nightlife area of St. Louis. By the time I arrived in 68, it looked like Berlin in 1945. It was like this only this house was left. Most of the people who worked at the station also lived in communal style at the station. station came on the air with whoever got up first and turned the transmitter on. So I got down there. I did an interview with them. They asked me if I'd like to take some time spinning a few records. I went through their library. 
picked out a few, did it. Then they asked me if I wanted to have my own show for three years. Every Thursday from 2 to 6, people heard The Slatkin Project on KDNA 102.5, Radio Free St. Louis. And I could play whatever I wanted to. I could play jazz. I could play folk music. I could have a theme for the show. It's raining out there today. Let's do a program about water. And it would be songs, symphonies, suites, whatever I could find that was about water. Today, the Slacken Project presents C Major. And I would find all these different discs of things that were in C Major. And I got to interview people. We could actually have phone lines where you could patch in five people from different parts of the city. And it's where I learned about interests of the general public. Why weren't they coming to concerts? How could we attract them? So I was starting for the first time to be able to communicate. Mostly for me, however, because up until that time, I was very shy, extremely introverted. I had difficulty speaking to people, much less groups. And you can imagine what it must have felt like, indeed, that first time I stood in front of the orchestra after the strike. But radio taught me how to do it. You sit alone, isolated, in a room. Back then, there were no producers, no engineers. We did it all ourselves. I wouldn't trade that radio experience for anything. I loved it, and I still do. Well, talk about being lonely. One of the things that you talk about in your book is that the job of a conductor can be very lonely. The job of a composer can be very lonely. Is it, in fact, a lonely existence when you are not standing in front of an orchestra? Well, the good thing is I'm married to a composer. So <laughs> we, we share lonely. Everybody tends to think that the musical life, and particularly that of a conductor, is glamorous. You get to travel all over the world. You see the great capitals of Europe. You get to visit exotic places in Asia. You get to visit Kennett, Missouri. And really what happens is you arrive, you go to your hotel. Hopefully the room is ready. You try to relax a little bit take out the music, study, you go to your rehearsals, come back to the hotel, room service maybe, maybe if you're lucky you go out to a restaurant and you do it again the next day and then you have your performances. It is a very isolated thing and conducting in particular is that lonely experience because as opposed to say a violinist or a flute player who have their instruments and can produce that sound conductor does not have the orchestra in their hotel room, nor do we want that. In other words, I have to just look at the music and figure out how it's going to sound and have it well enough into my head that by the time I see the orchestra, that sound in my head translates. But that's the lonely part. Just sitting there, you and the composer speaking from those lines and circles on the page. If you could talk to any composer today, if you could bring somebody back, who would you want to talk to? Franz Schubert. A lot of people say Bach. They say Beethoven. They say Haydn. I picked Schubert for a different reason. It's hard to imagine today, but these composers churned out so much music in their lifetimes, all handwritten. Mozart decided because... 
he died at age 35. Schubert died at age 31. And in his lifetime, he produced nine symphonies, 15 quartets, operas, more than 500 songs, and various miscellaneous pieces of chamber music as well. One gets the feeling, or I do, with Schubert, that he was never really thinking as he wrote. He just let it flow from his head onto the page. So I want to know how physically could he put that much music on the page? He also had a career as a pianist. How do you put that much music down? Most authors can't do that. And yet here are these composers. I want to know that, and I want to know what was the society like that permitted this to happen? How did society accept this composer who falls historically between Beethoven and Brahms? How did he move music forward? He's never thought of quite in the same category as those two great masters. And yet there's something so moving and inspirational to me about his music. He would be the one I would want to talk to. You said that you can't conduct, conduct enough Haydn or Schubert. Why? Because one, it's not as accepted by the public. If I was to say, we're going to have a Schubert festival, the first thing markets are going to say, no, you're not. Haydn festival? Uh-uh. Mozart festival? Yes. So part of it has to do with the demands of the market as it exists. Haydn actually was very popular for many, many years. And now he's fallen by the wayside. And it's too bad because this is just such wonderful, inventive music. And Schubert, I don't know, he's just kind of, except for the vocal works and some of the chamber music, also is thought of a little bit in the background. But these are composers who deserve to be heard on an equal par with their more esteemed colleagues. I want to talk to you about the rehearsal process because I thought there was lots of rehearsing going on. <laughs> I thought you guys rehearse for, I don't know, weeks or something. And then I read your book and I find out that is hardly the case. And I wanted you to talk about when you finally decide upon a work and everybody knows this is what we're going to be performing, I would love for you to talk about the rehearsal process and what happens and there's not much of it. In the professional circumstance, mostly around the world, not just here or any place you might think of, when you're in a university situation, amateur orchestra, you have plenty of time. Everybody has to learn the music. In the professional workplace, at least when you're at the level of the Detroit Symphony or New York Philharmonic or Berlin Philharmonic, and you have a subscription concert to play, in other words, a two-hour program, usually consisting of three different pieces of music, you'll have probably four rehearsals to do it in. A rehearsal period is either two and a half or two hours. During this time, you have to put everything together. You have to get your interpretation across to the orchestra, some music they'll be familiar with, some they won't. You have to find a way that your technique fits the sound and style of the orchestra. If you're a conductor that wants to change that sound and style, you have to do all that. Yes, if we're doing music that is familiar to the orchestra, you would think that's the easiest part, but in some ways it's the most difficult. If I go and guest conduct, say, in Cleveland, and I bring to them a Beethoven symphony, 
I'm pretty sure that the last person who did that Beethoven symphony with the orchestra did it in a very different way than I do it. So I have to unlearn it for them and put it back together in a different way. So there really isn't a lot of time. It's less than 10 hours to put a program together. And that's the regular subscriptions. If you come to a Pops concert, it's either going to be one or two rehearsals. If you come to a summer concert, sometimes just one rehearsal and that's it. And there are occasions when there are no rehearsals. And in some ways, that's the most challenging because that's when we are required to really exhibit our craft. Not necessarily the art part, but the craft part. Are we clear enough to the orchestra that they can figure it out without saying one word? It happened to me two years ago, the most recent time, I was on a train headed to Chicago, and I was going there to judge a competition. And while I was on the train, at four in the afternoon, my cell phone rang, and it was the artistic administrator of the orchestra. She knew that I was coming to Chicago. And she said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I should be arriving at the station in about an hour, and I was uh, planning to come to your concert with Maestro Muti. And she said, well, this morning, he collapsed on the podium and fell forward. He's in the hospital. Uh, do you think you could conduct Shostakovich 5? And from the competition, I was headed off to L.A., so I had my formal clothes with me. And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I got to the hotel, got my clothes out, went down to orchestra hall, walked on the stage. Not a word was spoken between myself and the orchestra, and we gave a slam-bang performance. And I know I do the piece very different than Maestro Muti, but that's when it really counts. That's when you really have to show that you know what you're doing. Can you talk about the upcoming DSO season? What can we expect? I know there's a big Tchaikovsky festival. It's a huge Tchaikovsky festival, actually. This comes on, not quite on the heels, but two years after we tried it with Beethoven. Our toughest ticket sales period is in February because many people are not here. Most of the people who tend to come to concerts disappear. They go to either northern climes, where there's white stuff on the hills, or they go to southern climes where there is sun. So we had to figure out a way to attract a new audience. Two years ago, we did all nine symphonies of Beethoven in the course of three weeks, and we shattered attendance records. I wanted to see how that went before embarking on another project in a similar way. And now that we know it did well, we're going to try it with Tchaikovsky. So in the course of three weeks, the DSO will play the six numbered symphonies by that composer, all three of the piano concertos, you didn't know there were two others, the violin concerto and the Rococo variations, which is the cello concerto. There'll be some miscellaneous Tchaikovsky as well. There'll be cherry music, there'll be talks, there'll be lectures, so that's exciting. The end of the season, we'll see something that, although we sort of did one last year, but it was a premiere, we're planning each year to have a concert presentation of an operatic masterpiece. This year it's Tosca. We will have a theme that runs through the season. It's called the Concerto in America. That doesn't mean all the works are American works, because works like the Tchaikovsky First Concerto, the Third Prokofiev, the Dvorak Cello Concerto, Third Bartok Concerto, these were works that were written while these composers were here in the United States, but will also be hearing concertos by... Barber, we'll hear concertos by John Corleano, we'll hear one by my wife, Cindy McTee, 
and a kind of one for me, which will get its world premiere in about a month and a half. How far in advance do you start thinking about what the season is going to look like? We're pretty much in the process of wrapping up what will be the 15-16 season now, and already we have ideas in motion for 16-17. So the answer is about two years. Coming up next, Leonard Slatkin talks about the importance of education and the Motown sound. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andalisi with the conclusion of my conversation with Leonard Slatkin. So you go to all of these different halls, all these different uh, concert venues, and they all are configured differently, so mm-hmm. they don't sound the same. That's exactly right. If you so, Orchestra Hall is presumably one of the best acoustics. One of the great in, halls in the world. But you're not always going to have that. So, the placement of the musicians on the stage. Do you change that sometimes to get the sound that you think you need to get? I liken it to the idea: if you're going to be a guest in somebody's house for a week. Do you walk in and change the furniture because you don't like the way it is in your room? And most of you don't. You adjust yourself to the way the environment has been set up. If, however, you're going to stay there for a few weeks or a month, then you might ask your host, do you mind if I move the desk over here a little bit? And most of the time they'll say, sure, that'll be okay. It's the same for me with an orchestra. If I go to some place and the configuration on stage is different than what I'm used to, I try to adjust to it. An example. What most of you see, certainly if you come to Orchestra Hall, and the majority of orchestras in the world, place all the violins together on the left side of the conductor. Some orchestras go to an old-fashioned setup, which is still prevalent in the opera pit, and that's the first violins are to the conductor's left, and the second violins are the conductor's right. That takes some getting used to. But if it's the way the orchestra is used to playing and the way their music director thinks it sounds best, I will try to adhere to that. Once in a while, I will say that's not going to work with the particular repertoire we're playing, where the violins have to be together in order to achieve certain effects and certain ideas. But for the most part, if it's a one-week stint as a guest, uh, I'm very happy to accept what the conductor has left me. One of the fascinating things that you talked about in your book was the process of actually getting to the podium, which I (laughs) never would have thought about until you described how challenging it can be when you're in different places. Talk about that a little bit, especially the more challenging situations that you've had. It was, I'm sure, well, it was kind of funny when I read it, but I don't think it was funny when you did it. No. uh, Most of the time, it's fairly straightforward. But in a few places, there are some real hazards. Here at Orchestra Hall, you'll notice that the concertmaster and the conductor emerge as you're looking at the stage from the right side, the side where the cellos and violas are. The majority of halls, the conductors come from the left side. The reason we don't do it here, there's no way to get to the left side at Orchestra Hall. The back part is blocked off. 
Everybody has to come on through the one side. But the single most challenging entrance to be made is in Amsterdam at the famous Concertgebouw. It's challenging because we don't come on from either the left or the right. We start at the top of a staircase and descend what feels like 800 steps to get to the podium, and there is no banister, no railing. And it is long. And you know, you wonder if you fall, one, who's got the insurance coverage on this? And also, we were told you're supposed to come down without looking down. You're supposed to actually just look straight at the audience and walk down. And uh, I tripped once, but not going down, I tripped going up. That was really embarrassing. But that's the toughest entrance to make, that place. Let's talk about coming to Detroit. 2008, you picked a heck of a year to show up. I did, and I had concluded my tenure of 12 years in Washington, my two terms as it were, and I couldn't run again. And I thought I wouldn't have another music directorship. I really thought that was enough. I've run two orchestras in the States. I've done it for a little over 30 years. And it was time just to enjoy life, do some guest conducting, that would be enough. I hadn't conducted in Detroit in more than 25 years, but I was asked to come here and guest conduct. And I didn't even realize there was a vacancy for music director. It was the weekend when all of the high rollers and everybody else in the city go off to Mackinac Island for whatever retreat that is. And after the first two days of rehearsals, all of a sudden, all these people started to come back and receptions were held. I was getting along with the orchestra really well. Performances were terrific. I was having a great time. And so they asked me to come back in the summer, they hastily put together a couple concerts in Meadowbrook. One was a Beethoven program. And at the time, that's all they asked me to do. I said, it's a summer festival. It means you're doing something else on the weekend. They said, well, but you don't need to do that. It's a Pops concert. And I said, but I can do that. I have this background in all styles. They said, just tell me what it is. Uh, it's with the Van Trapp family singers. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to do it. I, I really don't like believing that the reason I got this job was because of the sound of music. Really, that concept is too bizarre. But they asked me, and then everybody warned me about what was coming. Not just the impending economic downturn, but the difficulties that the orchestra was experiencing. And that's what got me interested. I loved the hall. I loved the orchestra, and I felt that there was this passion, that there was this something I could do. I'm not about maintenance. I'm about building. I, if somebody said, well, why didn't you hold out for Chicago or whatever? Well, one, uh, maybe they wouldn't ask. But two, you don't have to do a lot in those places. Here, I could do something. So everything went south. And that's when I started to work. And we started planning 
for what would happen when the city started to recover and when the orchestra would come back from a prolonged strike. Three years after the orchestra was away for six months, and there was no orchestra, we are in a very healthy position. And I really feel that I'm in my element when I'm doing a job where I can help, where I can grow, and something that can transform me as well as the orchestra, and in this case, the city. Let's talk about Motown music for a second. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you were familiar with it before you came here. Oh, yes. Talk about how you felt about that music. As I said, I grew up in this household where literally the Duke Ellington expression held sway, and the expression is, there are only two kinds of music. There's good music and the other stuff. So our home and the recording studios and all this that I was able to attend as a youngster taught me about Bernstein's book, The Infinite Variety of Music. And you just learn to discern for yourself what you like and what you don't like. There's a wonderful story about Dizzy Gillespie in the hospital, literally on his deathbed. And the jazz pianist Kenny Barron, who used to play with Diz, goes to see him and says, oh, Diz, man, like, this is the worst. And Gillespie goes, what do you mean it's the worst? You're dying, man. World's not going to hear those chops anymore. He says, no, no, that's not the worst. Kenny Byrne says, what's worse than dying? And he says, country music. <laughs> um, but I spent two years in Nashville, and I learned about country music. And I learned about its origins, and spiritual and gospel, and all those connections. And once you start studying and listening, you find the good stuff. As far as Motown goes, that was my stuff. I was born in 1944, so it means by the 50s, when all this started to grow and bloom, I was in my teenage years. It's what we danced to. Well, I'm a horrible dancer, but I listened to a lot of it. And many of these people were my idols. I took my son, who's 20 now, to the Motown Museum last year. And all of a sudden, music that he actually didn't care for so much came alive to him. He couldn't believe the small studio where they recorded. Couldn't believe how it was all put together. Sessions that went till four and five in the morning. And he came away with an incredible respect for it. The form, the sound, the style. Everything about it is exciting. And when you think about the people who came from here, from all walks of musical life, even through now, yeah, I know the White Stripes left, but still, it's an amazing place. And it's a pleasure to, uh, to work there. As many of you know, a couple of years ago, we did a concert with Kid Rock. Yes. And it was one of the great events for us. We loved doing it. Why? Because he's a professional. He was there for the rehearsals. The band was tight. And we just had a ball doing it. I think it's a big difference now in especially young musicians. I and mean, I was lucky because I grew up in it. But you tend to think of classical musicians being isolated. They're in their own world. And for a lot of cases, that's exactly true. But now the younger musicians are more well-versed in today's music. And they come to it 
with fresher ears than most people of my generation. So for me, the world of popular music, whether I like it or not, is something that I must keep up. But it's still, for me, the, the real world that I inhabit when it's not my own is the world of jazz. I still think for me the, the idea of invention, how people can think that fast with chord changes. I was listening uh, the other day to uh, a lot of music of Bill Evans and and Keith Jarrett as well. Uh, and I, I can't believe the facility of being able to make those kind of chord changes just spontaneously. Uh, I was a jazz pianist as well, but never like that. Uh, th there's just incredible people and to be admired on not just the technical level, but the soul that they reach down to. It's, it's a lot of fun being a musician and listening to others. Let's talk about the importance of education for a second. This campaign that you were going to do with Hillary Clinton, I thought was brilliant. Toby, you may want to listen to this. Um, can you talk about that campaign? Because you talk about the importance of education and how music is transformative. I have a clip that I've played when I did a tribute to uh, Quincy Jones. Mm. And he talks about how he and his friends were troublemakers and they were going into this building where they knew there was going to be a shipment of something silly. I think it was ice cream or something. And they were going to steal. And he is running around and he ends up in this room and there is a piano in this room. And he stops and he starts to turn around to leave. And this voice in his, his head said, fool, what are you doing? Mm. And he turns back around and that changed his life entirely. He said his life, it changed the entire trajectory of his life because he saw and experienced what that piano was. It can happen to so many kids and the education of music is so crucial. It's not just music. It's we've forgotten the place of the arts. It's not just in the States either. It's, it's in Europe. The only places where it seems to still thrive are in some of the Asian communities and in Venezuela, at least in part. What you referred to with Mrs. Clinton was a kind of interesting time. While I was in Washington, the majority of it was during the Clinton administration and part of it from the Bush administration. And the president was keenly involved in music. He had a celebration for my orchestra, the National Symphony at the White House. It was absolutely amazing. And I got to know him as well as his wife well enough that they allowed me to call them by first name, which I don't like to do publicly, but they allowed it. Every so often, Mrs. Clinton and I would sit down together. She was keenly interested in music, especially in the nation's capital. And she also was concerned about the education system and its failure these days to place any kind of importance on the arts. So we came up with an idea. You all know basically the Got Milk campaign. People smear a little bit of white paint on their lip and got milk. We had the idea that there were so many people who had music education as youngsters, but went on to different professions. And we wondered, where is the problem in education? It's certainly not with the kids. It's with the parents and the grandparents who've allowed this deterioration to occur. So the campaign wasn't geared at the children, it was geared at the adults. Here's what was gonna happen. You would have 
for example, Alan Greenspan, time chairman of the Federal Reserve, but perhaps not so well known was the fact that he was a clarinet major at Juilliard School of Music. So we would have a young person dressed in a striped suit like Alan would wear. Standing next to him would be Alan with a clarinet. In other words, you had the person who had music, the adult, as if they grew up to be a musician, but you had the young person dressed in what their current role is, meaning that even though they didn't enter music, music still meant that much to them. Alan Greenspan's wife, Andrea Mitchell, violinist. Sam Donaldson, terrific pianist. Michael Jordan, clarinet. On and on it went, this list of people we put together. We went to a couple organizations to ask just for funding to help us do this. And all of these requests were turned down. Uh, we couldn't figure out why. Then the election came, and the idea died. But it seemed like a good idea at the time, and maybe somehow we can resurrect it. In some ways, we've done that in Detroit, haven't we? At least for a little while, you used to see those billboards yep. for, was it United Way, I think? where you had young people who were, mm -hmm. this might be the next... Future uh, judge. Yeah, or whatever yes. it happened to be. Mm -hmm. So maybe somebody somewhere heard about our idea. But it was a pleasure to work with the Clintons. And actually, it was, it was kind of fun to work with uh, George Bush as well. It, it was a different kind of time. With the Clintons, you were invited to something, and you know it said uh, 5 o'clock, and you, know, you came 5.15, 5.30, with the Bushes, if you weren't there by 5 o'clock, the doors closed. And then with the Clintons, the protocol always was that you could not leave a function until the president has left. Well, we were at something, and it was 1.30 in the morning. We were, Good night, Bill. We just went out of the building, and that was it. It was just a different time, different ethic. He asked you to teach him how to conduct, yeah. didn't he? Well, actually, we invited him to conduct at the National Symphony. The hall had been closed for about nine months for renovation. And at our reopening, I just said, how'd you like to come and conduct? He said, well, what do I have to do? I said, well, Stars and Stripes Forever would be good. He said, okay, but only if you come to the Oval Office and give me a lesson. I said, sure. So I went, uh, and surprisingly, even though we knew he played sax, he apparently had had some experience conducting when he was in high school. And I said, show me how your beat looks. And he did. I said, that looks pretty good. And he says, what do I do about that retard before the brass stand up? I went, whoa, how does he know about that? Um, and then a little bit like we talked about earlier, the entries, I said, this is going to seem really dumb, Mr. President. Can you show me how you're going to bow? And so we had a little bowing lesson. And then the remaining 15 minutes, we just talked about various things in the world. So it came to the concert. And I wanted this to be a surprise for the audience. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And his schedule didn't permit him to come and rehearse. Believe me, no orchestra in the world has to rehearse Stars and Stripes forever. So he was seated in a box for the first half of the concert. And the people sitting with him would tell me later he was really fidgety. Then came intermission, 
after intermission, he went near the backstage area and he was pacing and pacing and pacing. Uh, so finally, I said to the audience at the end of the schedule program, I said, you know, every concert when we play an encore, we always do the Stars and Stripes forever. And frankly, it's a wonderful piece, but I'm a little tired of doing it. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the National Symphony's new assistant conductor, the President of the United States, and out he comes. And he conducts it, and he does a really good job. In his autobiography, he actually cites this, and he said, in some ways, this was the highlight of his eight years because he got 100 people to do what he wanted. <laughs> Let's talk about the future of classical music. Uh, w the next generation of classical fans, where they're going to come from, how you keep them, how you get them interested if they're not interested yet. Um, one of the things that uh, struck me was the amount of administrative responsibilities that you have as the music director. Um, you have to think about uh, budgets and the future of the organization and as if you don't have enough to think about, but it struck me as to how much of your life is spent thinking about those things and making sure that, or trying to put systems in place so this, this music can live on and this next generation can embrace it somehow. So we have to really remember that there are two different kinds of conductors. There are guest conductors, so when I'm not with my two orchestras, either the one here in Detroit or the one in Lyon, I show up, I rehearse, I do the concerts, I go on to the next place. And you're right, as music director, I'm responsible for so many facets of the organization. Marketing, public relations, finance, fundraising, hiring of musicians, uh, just the demeanor we are on stage, how we look, how we sound, all these things go into it. All those things must be taken into consideration as we look to the future. You hear about the graying of the audience. That's kind of always been the case. Audiences don't come to classical music, which is a term I really wish there was, I, I wish there was a better term for it, but there's not. They come to it usually after they're established in their careers, after their families are old enough for them to have the leisure time. But we're in competition with all those forms. We're in competition with sports events, we're in competition with theater, with movies. Most people could just stay at home and live their whole lives watching the screen or listening to whatever it is. And we have to find these ways to bring them to us. A lot of that does have to do with the education system because once the majority of young people are exposed to classical music, even if they don't go into it, and the majority will not, they do find a way to make it part of their lives. The pianist Lang Lang told me an astonishing statistic. In China, there are more than 50 million piano students. 50 million piano students. Because part of the Chinese ethic now is that in order to be part of the Western marketplace, we have to absorb and adapt elements 
of Western culture. Lang Lang is about as big a star as you can get. Kids admire him the same way they admire Beyonce or whoever it happens to be. And so they aspire to that. Clearly, there is not enough room on the planet for 50 million pianists. There can only be a handful of people who achieve this superstar status. The majority of those people will not get there. Many of them, however, will come to study either in Europe or in the States. And many of those people, even if they don't become musicians, will choose to remain in those countries rather than return. That probably will be what our audience looks like 20 years from now. We're into about the second, beginning of third generation Asian Americans who are really contributing in vital, dynamic ways to the artistic culture in this country. The New York Philharmonic one year had seven vacancies. Four were filled by musicians born in China. Some people say, well, that's horrible. These jobs need to go to American born and trained musicians. Well, a lot of them are now. People whose heritage, like mine, from Russia, I'm a second generation American. So my roots are still tied somewhat to my family's history. But nobody ever refers to me as a Russian-American, just as those people from Japan, Korea, China, who were born in this country and are also second and third generation, they are Americans. And that's what are we are going to be facing. But because those cultures place a value on education from the youngest age, I do not worry about the future of classical music the way some people do. And I think we can take a lesson from each and every one of those countries as well as others and try to follow that part to preserve the cultural heritage that at least makes up the United States. How can we, in a curriculum though, do it when budget cutbacks are so extensive? I have a simple solution, although probably very naive. All art, to some degree, is a reflection of time, time in history. For example, when Beethoven writes his third symphony, he is in awe of Napoleon. While he's at work on the piece, Napoleon declares himself emperor of Europe. Beethoven's idol is deflated, and Beethoven is furious, and he's angry, and he takes an eraser, and he scratches out the dedication to Napoleon. You can see this in the manuscript. And then when you listen to the first two chords that start the Eroica Symphony, bah, bah, you can play them with the kind of anger that Beethoven must have felt at the time. It brings history and culture together, and almost any great piece of art will do that. And I think if we find a way to train our history teachers in incorporating the cultural, social, economic, and political views of the time, I think there'll be a greater understanding and appreciation for what art is and what it can be. 
My thanks to Leonard Slatkin for talking with me. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.